everyone. Wonderful to have you again with us uh, at Sunnyfield Church this morning. Uh, if you're ready to have your Bibles open, my apologies um, that I neglected to mention. We were actually going to begin from chapter 32, verse 22, uh, which is probably just as well. I've already had a few people come up to me this morning and say, I've got questions for you um, about today's passage. Uh, so if you do have questions, if there are things that, uh, that I say that you'd like to ask about the things from the passage itself, Please do use that QR code at the bottom of the sermon outline to look out, uh, and we'll endeavour to try and touch um, some of those uh, later in this morning. Well, 230 years ago, the Austrian army, led by the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II, found its encampment, which was in Romania at the time, uh, tens of, I think it led more than tens of thousands of soldiers, tens of thousands. They found themselves unexpectedly ambushed under the cover of night, uh, sparking a bloody skirmish that would continue on through the whole night until the daybreak. Now, it was assumed that the Turkish army, who they were combating with at the time, had unexpectedly discovered their position and decided to surprise them under the cover of darkness. However, as the sun rose over the turmoil, going on in his camps, uh, this Austrian military camp, the sun revealed that there had actually been no enemy anywhere within miles of them. They had, in fact, been fighting only themselves. Apparently, the entire battle had been sparked by one drunken officer who discharged his weapon during the night, provoking all the on-edge soldiers to mistakenly take up arms against each other and to do battle with those who are actually their allies, those who are on their side, otherwise keeping an eye out for them. Uh, the bewildering and mysterious events I reckon described in today's passage have a similar feel about them, especially those that we're going to read in a moment from the end of chapter 32. A seemingly pointless nighttime struggle. Uh, having just evaded the, moral, uh, the mortal threat sorry, of his uncle Laban, who had been issuing him last week, and in anticipation of this confrontation that Jacob's about to have with his murderous brother Esau the following day, Jacob finds himself alone in the deserted camp after dark in a state of heightened anxiety. Just before the passage was read out to us earlier, let's have a look at how that begins. Chapter 32 is where I'm going to kick off from. Chapter 32, uh, verse 22. The night before he was about to meet Esau, we read, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the floor to Jacob. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled him till daybreak. When the man saw that he would not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. Now it's not immediately clear where on earth this man has materialized from. It's not clear immediately who he is, or even why on earth he's even come to be grappling with Jacob. Cause is there for them to be fighting one another in the middle of the night? Does Jacob assume that Laban has circled back deceitfully to attack him? 
despite their agreement that we saw them make last week, does Jacob imagine that maybe Esau, the expert hunter that we know he is, as he maybe tracked Jacob through the night and caught him unawares, the passage has a deliberate ambiguity about it at first, I think, to begin with. Uh, later on in the scriptures, the prophet Hosea, reflecting on these verses, it's chapter 12, if you want to have a look at it later, describe Jacob's struggle in this passage as being with both an angel and with God himself. Perhaps we're to assume that this skirmish was the Lord's angel, the one who represents God's own presence to his people. And given the encounter of angels that Jacob had just happened upon, stumbled upon until last week, I think that seems to be the most likely explanation of how this man is. And yet Jacob certainly isn't clear about that, at least not at the beginning of these events. But it is clear, whoever this figure is, that he is to some degree toying with Jacob in the struggle. This figure clearly has the power to do harm to Jacob if he so wished, the power to dislocate, to wrench apart the tendons of Jacob's hip and groin with just a touch. But it's also clear that this mysterious figure can't convince Jacob to abandon this pointless nocturnal wrestling match that they find themselves engrossed in. I have a look at me again in verse 25. Uh, we'll continue on from there. Verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is dangerous. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. Whoever he imagines this mysterious combatant is, Jacob clearly recognizes that this mysterious figure is greater than himself. For it's only ever the greater party who blesses the lesser party in the scriptures. The greater will always bless the lesser. And in asking for a blessing, Jacob is recognizing that this figure is way out ahead. Now, at this point, Jacob's crippled hip leaves him powerless to actually defeat the mysterious man by force. Jacob can do nothing but cling on desperately and stubbornly plead that he be given a blessing. Perhaps surprisingly, the mysterious figure appears perfectly willing to oblige. What is your name? The mysterious figure asks Jacob. Now the last time that Jacob had tried to secure a blessing for himself, he'd been asked the same kind of question by his blind father Isaac. Do you remember that right back? Of this story through Isaac's experience. Suspecting that deception was afoot, Isaac had asked who it was that he was blessing. And having an advantage over his blind father, Jacob had lied in order to secure a blessing by deception. But here, 
Notice that Jacob doesn't actually wrestle or deceive a blessing out of his finger. Jacob simply holds on to him helplessly, crippled at the hip, and receives a blessing that is given just as it was asked for. And along with the blessing, Jacob also acquires a new name. Israel's new name is given. Israel meaning wrestles with God to supplement his existing name, Jacob, which means grasps at the hip. And interestingly, unlike when Abraham is Abraham, his new name Abraham, Jacob doesn't switch to having his new name Israel from here. From here on in, for the rest of Genesis, it switches back and forth between calling Jacob and Israel. Both names continue to get used, but in the story ahead. And neither name, I think, really is very complimentary. A 90, at 97 years old, which is what Jacob is here, Jacob has lived an entire life imagining that blessing is something he needs to wrestle from the clutches of either other people or from God himself. But as the sun begins to rise, it finally dawns on Jacob that God has delivered on the very promise that he had made 20 years earlier. I wonder if you recall back in chapter 28 of Genesis, just as Jacob was getting ready to leave his homeland, as the sun we're told was setting, God made a promise to bless Jacob, to keep him safe, to make him prosper, and to bring him back to the land that God was going to give And here, 20 years later, the sun is rising as Jacob returns home. And God has, during that time, proven himself perfectly faithful in delivering everything that he had said to him. The sun sets as God promises he will be with Jacob. The sun rises as God finally proves himself perfectly able and capable and willing to deliver every blessing to Jacob that he had spoken previously. And it's only at this point that it all clicks for Jacob. This one that he's been needlessly wrestling with face to face is the same God who 20 years earlier had already promised to bring him back to the land. Jacob, Jacob never did need to wrestle with anyone, not God, not man, in order to secure a blessing. To overcome or prevail, he simply had to hold on and wait for God to deliver on his promises. And exactly the same language is used in Revelation chapter 3 to describe the Christian's experience as well. There, the writer of the Revelation says that to those who overcome, to those who prevail, to those who hold on, will be delivered a share in the wealth, in the power, in the name of God's favoured Son, the Lord Jesus, who sits on the throne. Now, what follows, I think, is perhaps one of the most tender and moving moments in the whole of the Jacob character. Uh, let me read to you. I'll read from verse 13. We read, So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life is spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. The rising sun 
a symbol of God's faithful kindness, casting its warm glow over Jacob. And in fact, this same image of a rising sun, of God being like a rising sun that shines his blessing on people, is used once again when Jacob's descendants, all of his, the tribes of his sons, return back into the promised land after having been in exile in slavery in Egypt. The rising sun, a symbol of God's faithful kindness, casting its warm glow over Jacob, and the limb, the limb signifying a humbled and chastened Jacob. But also a Jacob who is more at peace in this moment than he has ever been before, all the way through to the afterwards. The glorious splendor of the splendor of God's undeserved grace shining down on the limping frailty of the faulty self of Jacob. And it brings to mind for me God similarly through the Apostle Paul. Someone mentioned this in one of my growth groups this week. Confronted by his own frailty, Signified not by a limb, but by a thought in the flesh. You might remember that Paul had pleaded with God to remove his own weakness. But God declined to do so, declaring instead to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, from that point, the Apostle Paul resolved to actually boast to remember his weakness, so that the light of Christ's power might instead rest on him. But Jacob's newly discovered peace of mind, his capacity now to rest in God, is quickly put to the test as he looks up and sees Esau approaching with his 400 men that we read about last week. Uh, pick it up with me in chapter 33, verse 4. Well, I'll read from verse 1, actually. Uh, chapter 32, verse 1. And Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Uh, before we imagine that this meeting represents an unqualified, happy family reunion, we might want to recall who last greeted Jacob in precisely this way, by running to him, by embracing him, by kissing him, even a few tears being shed. It was Laban, wasn't it? Remember? The one who sought to absorb Jacob into his own family for his own financial benefit. The one who would seek to control and manipulate Jacob with wages rather than allow him to pursue being blessed by God instead. This slightly standoffish vibe that we'll see between Jacob and Esau in a moment is actually, I think, a wise recognition by Jacob that his and Esau's destinies ultimately don't lie in life together. No meaning anyway. In fact, let's have a look at just one aspect of how Jacob and Esau relate at this moment of reunion. Uh, have a look at me at verse 8, chapter 3, verse 33, verse 8. We read, referring to all the gifts that Jacob sent ahead of him, we read about that last week. Verse 8, Esau asked Jacob, 
What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I get? Find favor in your eyes, my Lord, Jacob said. But Esau said, I have already, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. In response to Jacob's gifts, Esau insists, Jacob, keep it for yourself. I, I have plenty. In fact, plenty is a little bit of an understatement uh, at this point. For in fact, Esau possesses everything that Isaac had previously, the father had previously promised to bless Jacob with. Esau remained behind with Isaac and now possesses everything that once had belonged to his father. The blessing and inheritance that Isaac had pronounced over Jacob was actually all ended up in Esau's hands anyway. And yet Jacob's response is to insist that he give Esau even more. Have a look at me in verse 11 to uh, Jacob's response. Actually, I'll read from verse 10. Jacob replies, No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favour in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favourably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, he's already accepted. I have all I need. In fact, literally, what Jacob says in these verses is, I have everything. Full stop. I have everything, is what Jacob replies to Esau. Jacob is not simply merely contented with what he has acquired over the past 20 years. Jacob is returning home not only with everything that he needs, but with everything that God had promised to give him. Indeed, Jacob has enough in having everything. He has enough to even bless both Laban and Esau out of what God has given to him. While Esau himself owns nothing that is worth anything to Jacob. And I think that explains why Jacob takes leave of Esau at this point. Why Jacob decides not to return with Esau and live together in the same encampment. Uh, let's have a look at how this plays out. I'll just read two verses. Uh, first of all, verse 12. Uh, then Esau said to Jacob, Let us be on our way, and I will accompany you. And, and again, Jacob loves that offer. And down again in verse 15. Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favour in the eyes of my Lord. And so that day Esau starts back on his way to Seir, and Jacob returns in the opposite direction towards Shechem and the land called Canaan, toward the land that God had promised to give to Jacob. See, Jacob's decision to part company with Esau isn't an act of deceit. It's, it's not some pathological tendency towards conflict avoidance. You know, Jacob just can't deal with it and so it runs in the opposite direction. Jacob is choosing to entrust himself to God's promises that he will give him the land of Canaan rather than to trust whatever security might have lain in the hands of Esau, whatever Esau might have had to offer him. While Jacob genuinely seeks peace with Esau, he knows that God is going to pursue a very different destiny to his brother. And it's a theme that actually resurfaces in the New Testament repeatedly. Uh, hopefully we'll have it popped up on the screen there, two verses from the 
Hebrews uh, chapter 14, the section from verse 16 as well, where the writer of Hebrews exhorts believers to make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. See that no one is godless like Esau. Like Jacob and Esau, God's people are to be genuinely and generously living at peace with those around about them, while also pursuing a life that is holy, that is distinct, separate, set apart from the life that those around them live. Jacob is the embodiment of what it is to live in the world as those people who belong uniquely to God himself, at peace with those around us, but holy and set apart as well. A life that is different than God has called us to. Now Jacob never did need to wrestle or struggle with anyone in order to secure or to take hold of God's blessing. Jacob only needed to keep holding on to the God who would first reach out to take hold of and bless him. And it's the very same sentiment that the Apostle Paul expresses when he writes in the letter to the Philippian church, read this earlier this morning, when Paul writes, I press, hold, I press on sorry, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. The Christian life is not one in which we ever need to grasp after or to wrestle good things out of the hands of God by our own strength. The Lord Jesus himself has already reached out and taken from us so that we might share in every heavenly blessing that belongs to him. To be sure, the Christian life may involve all kinds of wrestling and struggle. We might wrestle with a lack of confidence in the goodness of what God promises. We may wrestle with the goodness of God's will. We may wrestle with the mystery of God's time. We may wrestle with doubts over God's capacity to keep and deliver on his promises. We might wrestle with our own worthiness to even receive those promises. We might wrestle with the fears and frailty of our own mortal human flesh. We might wrestle with our desires and our hearts. We may wrestle with whether holding on to God really is worth the cost of all the things that are trusting him. Jacob himself wrestled greatly and consistently with all those things. But, as with Jacob, so also with us, the life of faith is never one in which we need to grasp after or to wrestle anything good out of the hand of God by our own strength or virtue. Rather, God has first reached out and taken hold of us so that he might bless us in and through his own beloved son. That is how God dealt with Jacob. That is how God dealt with the nation of Israel that came from this country. And that is how God continues to deal with us in and through his unfolding son, Jesus. Rather than ourselves grasping, we must learn to rest secure in his hold on us. And in doing so, a peace even greater than Jacob's
Father, so much of our lives as your people feels to be expressed in the form of a wrestle or a struggle. Father, we thank you that in the midst of that, even as we wrestle, even when we do wrestle needlessly, you are never far from us, nor is your face separate against us. Father, thank you that you wait patiently and endure us with kindness and gentleness as we struggle and wrestle to hold to you. Father, we ask that today you would remind us that you first reached out to hold of us, to taste and enjoy the blessings in your Son. We don't need to wrestle with them in your hand, but that you are faithful and secure to deliver them. And Father, we ask that just as you were with Jacob until that morning on which the sun rose and he grasped for the first time that you had delivered on all your promises, Father, we ask that you likewise be with us until the sun rises in the resurrection. And we too rest in the vast of the world and all your promises fulfilled. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, please feel free to send through any questions, comments, via uh, the QR code, and uh, you might have a chance to come back to those. Let's stand.